there had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature. Are you ready to get your world rocked? Ready! Are you ready to get your mind blown? Do it! One, two, three, four! He was a space hippie, a glam rock Ziggy Stardust, a thin white duke. David Bowie was proof of the power of transformation and the power of pop. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. We'll remember rock's greatest chameleon, David Bowie, through his career highlights, and we'll review his most recent album, Black Star. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and time now to remember one of music's most innovative artists. Look up here, I'm in heaven I've got scars that can't be seen I've got drama, can't be stolen Everybody knows me now That is a little bit of the song Lazarus, Greg, from what is now David Bowie's last album, Black Star. It was released on January 8, the day he turned 69, and the iconic rock star died on January 10th, apparently after a long battle with cancer that very few people knew about. Iconic career, we're going to get into that throughout this show. We consider him one of rock's Greats, and so we're devoting the show to him, survived by his wife of 25 years, the supermodel Iman. They had a 15-year-old daughter. Uh, He'd been famously married to Angie Bowie in the 70s, with whom he has an older son. Uh, She, of course, was immortalized in song by the Rolling Stones. Much of his life has been immortalized in song. Yes, Jim, Bowie was a tremendous musical innovator, a musician, songwriter, actor, multimedia artist, sexual revolutionary. We're dedicating this show to him. Many have called him the first postmodern rock star. And we want to look at this tremendous career that he's had over the decades, looking at some of the key moments, the key songs from that career. And we talked to his longtime producer, Tony Visconti, in 2008 on Sound Opinions. Here's Visconti from that interview talking about meeting David Bowie. My boss said, uh, you seem to have a... um uh, an ability to work with these odd musicians. <laughs> so I've got another one for you. And he played uh, David Bowie's first album that he made for DRAM. I think The World of David Bowie, mm-hmm. it was called. And um, I heard this kind of lovely, I don't know what you'd describe his voice. It was thin in those days. It wasn't, wasn't very, uh, well, it didn't have the sonority it has now. And he was writing stuff that was all over the place. He was trying to sound like Anthony Newley on a few tracks. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I like him very much. So David Platt says, well, he's in the next room. So all this was prearranged. <laughs> and um, we got on really great. He loved things American. He loved a group called The Fugs. He loved uh, Frank Zappa. And, uh, I lo- you know, I loved The Beatles. And was, uh, so we had a great bridge there. You know, we were talking about everything all at once. And uh, I remember we, it was a beautiful day. It was probably late autumn. And uh, we said, well, let, let's take a walk. So we walked out of, the, uh, of Oxford Street and kept walking. 
And we must have walked miles and miles because we ended up in South Kensington Mm. on the King's Road. And uh, I remember Knife in the Water was playing in this art film. And by then we established that we both liked scratchy black and white films. Didn't matter who made them (laughs) as long as they were scratchy and black and white. And they were foreign. (laughs) You know, they were in French or Italian or in this case Polish. And uh, we went to see A Knife in the Water by Roman Polanski. And uh, that was how we spent our first day together. It was just amazing. (laughs) Wow. So Bowie was not, you know, at at times in his career, especially early on, Bowie got this follower reputation. He is, of course, Pop's great chameleon. But, I mean, you're saying already at age 20 he, he was rooted in underground sounds to the point where he could quote the fugs at you? Yes, he he had everything in his collection. He had these records, too. Mm. Uh, But he didn't know what he wanted to do. And my job was to channel him. Like, we have to pick a genre, David, okay? What are we going to do? You know, what are we (laughs) going to do on your first album? So David started writing these songs on the 12-string guitar, and he wrote them pretty quickly. And these are all the songs that are on the first album I produced with him, the Space Oddity album. So we got him going in a direction it wasn't the best direction. I mean, a lot of Bowie fans love that album, but I, I cringe when I hear it. It wasn't, still wasn't right. Really? I mean, Space Oddity is considered, uh, you know, one of those perfect songs, you know? Well, I have to tell the Space Oddity story then. Mm-hmm. I didn't produce it. Yeah. Right. Was the I didn't right. like it. You didn't do. I'm... I didn't like it. <laughs> and how did so, you miss that boat? I recorded most of the album. I rehearsed the album with the group. And at the 11th hour, he, and this is what he'll always do, and this is what he's traditionally done now since I've met him, he writes one of his best songs at the end of the album. Because the pressure, he needs to be hyped up, he needs to be pressurized to, to create, unlike other artists who like to go away to the countryside and write. He brings a song to me, and it's not folk rock. It's like nothing we've uh, started to record or rehearsed. And uh, also, I listened to it closely, and I said, David, you're, you're stealing things. I said, the, the, <laughs> here am I sitting in a tin can. That's right off the Bookends album by Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> he was the, the ground control to Major Tom. Is, he's putting on a, a John Lennon voice there, and there are like a few Beatles alliter- alliterations there. So I said, David, this is one big cheap shot. And that's the exact, exact <laughs> expression. And he looked at me very painfully, and he says, I know, he says, but the record company likes it. I was full of principles in those days. I was uh, still hippie-ish, and I said, I can't do this. And uh, he, he said, okay, um, what should I do? I go, well, Gus Dudgeon, who is my friend and an engineer that we used, he, his office was two doors away from mine. I said, Gus would probably do a great job on this. And when I heard it, I regretted it instantly. I thought he did a marvelous job, and I thought the song was great. Mm-hmm. The next time I saw David, I said, this is really great, and, and congratulations, and I think you and Gus should finish the album together. He goes, no, I got that over with. Let's you and I finish the album. That's Tony Visconti talking about working with David Bowie on Sound Opinions in 2008. It's a great interview in our archives. As he said, he did not produce the song Space Oddity, but he worked on the album with Bowie. We've got to talk about that song, though, Greg, because it's the place that any discussion of Bowie has to start. Released in July 1969, the same month that human beings first walked on the moon with Apollo 11. What is great about this song? My friend Glenn Kenny, who's a film critic for VanityFair.com, wrote a wonderful piece about 
Bowie the actor. And he said there is no difference between Bowie the actor and Bowie the musician. And what I love about this, it's a one-song, catchy single, entire rock opera in the sense of playing different roles. Ground control, talking to Major Tom. Major Tom's circuit's dead. He's lost, right? He doesn't know where he's going. This is a heck of a thing to say when we don't yet know that the, the three men who we sent up into space are coming back, right? We didn't know what was going to happen when they landed on the moon. You've already used the word innovator twice, though, and I don't think that's Bowie's strength. We've tussled about this at various episodes of Sound Opinions. I think he's a synthesist. I think he heard things that were going on in the underground. He was particularly influenced by Pink Floyd and tracks like Interstellar Overdrive. He covered Sid Barrett famously. He knew about Hawkwind and their space operas. I think he was taking the space sci-fi art rock thing and putting it into the mode that he knew best. Remember, he'd been a struggling folky somewhere between Dylan and Donovan at the start of his career. Smiling girls and rosy boys, come and buy my little toys. Monkeys made of gingerbread and sugar horses painted red. Did not make a mark in the 60s, really. It was only at the tail end of the decade. 1969's halfway over when he really comes on the map, and then he would epitomize the 70s. I think the roots of so much of what Bowie would do throughout his career can be found in this one song. So uh, the place to start any discussion of David Bowie has got to be Space Oddity. Here it is on Sound Opinions. Ground control to Major Tom Ground control to Major Tom Take your protein pills and put your helmet on Ground control to Major Tom Commencing countdown engines on Check ignition and may God's love be with you. This is ground control to Major Tom. You've really made the grade. And the papers want to know. That is Space Oddity, the title track from David Bowie's Breakthrough album in 1969. 
Jim, the point made about the innovator, yes, we have tussled about this. I want to play a song next that illustrates that Bowie was indeed an innovator. This whole idea of postmodernism, collage, mixing and matching of styles, no one did it better than Bowie. Yes, he was infiltrating the underground, infiltrating different styles and influences to uh, mine them for creativity, but at the same time combining them in very unique ways and also putting his own sensibility on top of them and in many ways trumping some of the influences that he had in his music with his own sense of artistry. Life on Mars, to me, is an example of that artistry, a great track from what I consider his first masterpiece album, the 1971 Hunky Dory album. It was his fourth album. And I think he really found a sense of what he wanted to say and how he wanted to say on this particular record. You look at that album cover and there's uh, David Bowie looking very Marlena Dietrich on the cover. You know, he's got this (laughs) old Hollywood movie pose on there. And he's sort of playing with some of these styles of music. In fact, Life on Mars was based on the melody of a French pop song that he himself had been playing around with. Paul Anka later bought the rights to that particular song and wrote My Way with it, which Frank Sinatra later famously recorded. Bowie was a little bit ticked off about that circumstance. He goes, wait a minute, I got to that song first. I'll show you what what you can do with that particular set of chord changes. So he basically used the chord changes from my way via this French pop song to create Life on Mars. And what a masterpiece it is. He's got Rick Wakeman playing keyboards on it. Him and Rick Wakeman, future keyboardist for Yes, used to bum around in London during yeah, those days. They, they were they great were pals. pals. They, the Mellotron that Wakeman added is all over those early Bowie records. And Bowie was really disappointed when Rick joined Yes, yes. And, and left playing him. That beautiful piano playing. I mean, Bowie originally wrote the song on piano, and uh, Wakeman added his own embellishments. And then a beautiful string arrangement by another key collaborator for Bowie at the time, his guitar player, Mick Ronson. And then there's Bowie's vocal performance. He embodies this character, this girl with the mousy hair, watching this Western in a movie theater and just being just dumbstruck by the stupidity of it all. She says, I've seen this movie 10 times before. You know, they're presenting a vision of reality to me that I don't get at all. It has nothing to do with my life. Mm. This character wants to get out so desperately from the world she's living in. She's got, there's got to be a better world out there. Is there life on Mars? And Bowie himself was feeling that too. So you've got this incredibly acerbic set of verses in the song with this emotive chorus and this juxtaposition of those two moods. That is what Bowie did so well, blending these moods, these bittersweet feelings and creating beautiful songs out of them. Life on Mars from David Bowie from 1971 on Sound Opinions. It's a god-awful small affair To the girl with the mousy hair But her mummy is yelling no And her daddy has told her to go But her friend is nowhere to be seen Now she walks through her sunken dream To the seat with the clearest view And she's hooked to the silver screen But the film is a saddening bore For 
She's lived it ten times or more She could spit in the eyes of fools If they ask her to focus on Sailors fighting in the dance hall Life on Mars from David Bowie's Hunky Dory album on Sound Opinions. We'll continue honoring musical legend David Bowie in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, and we'll review his most recent and last album, Black Star, released just days before his death on his 69th birthday. Stay tuned.
Leggy played guitar Jamming good with Wed and Gilly And the spiders from Mars They played it left hand But made it too far Became the special man Then we were Ziggy's band Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim Dirigatis, and that's the nominal title track, Ziggy Stardust, from the David Bowie album The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars in 1972. We're celebrating the legacy of David Bowie upon his death at the age of 69 on January 10th. Jim, this has always struck me as uh, one of the great concept albums of the 70s, and, you know, a lot of people look back on it, and and if they remember Bowie for one thing... They'll focus on this album first, and I don't think they're far from wrong. It is a great piece of work by Bowie, in my opinion. Oh, we devoted an entire classic album dissection to this record that we both love in July 2012. I think it's a better rock opera than Tommy. Uh, It's got some uh, similarities to the Who story about a messianic figure eventually done in by his fans and the role of the rock star in rock and roll. Ziggy is a bisexual alien rock superstar. Bowie, by this point, had uh, definitively said in the press, I'm bisexual, and that gave so many people license to feel like there was place in rock and roll for them. I don't think the importance of that, the bravery of that, can be underestimated. So it becomes part of this story. This is the ultimate glam rock album, I think. Again, he was covetous of and influenced by his friend Mark Bolan, the leader of T-Rex. I think, really, in a lot of ways, T-Rex is the ultimate glam band, but Bowie, uh, when he put glam on, he sure wore it well, all right? Mm -hmm. And this record, uh, covering so much ground, telling the story, it's a little hard to follow at times. Most concept albums are, but the emotions are perfect, and there's such a range of them, from something like Rock and Roll Suicide or Suffragette City to the track I'm going to play. I'll say this has got to be top five in terms of the greatest opening tracks ever on an album five years we've got five years left planet Mm -hmm. earth we are screwing things up we are about to be extinct that seems really timely now too uh you know and and we better get our act together i just love the emotion and the voice i love the uh the the symphonic swells the the, the arrangements just perfect i love the snare drum boy that's one of my favorite snare drums in all of rock so much to love about five years by david bowie from the ziggy stardust album on sound opinions Girl, my age went off ahead Hit some tiny children If the black hadn't pulled her off I think she would have killed them A soldier with a broken arm It's this death to the wheels of a Cadillac Cop knelt and kissed the feet of a priest and the queer threw up the sight of that I think I saw you in an ice cream parlor drinking milkshakes cold and long smiling and waving and looking so fine don't think you knew you were in the song and it was
Five Years, the opening track from the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. That record makes Bowie a worldwide superstar, Greg. You know, we could talk about every one of Bowie's records from the 70s because I, I think they all have a great deal of merit. I mean, he was on fire in terms of how prolific he was during that era. There was like a dozen Bowie records released in that 10, 11-year period. The art was incredible. Young Americans, his 1975 album was unlike anything he had done before or since, really. His ninth studio album... He was enamored with uh, American soul music. He was spending a lot of time in New York and a lot of time in the States because of the touring that he was doing. He loved the club scene. The early days of disco was incredibly appealing to him. At the same time, again, Bowie, with the eyes and ears out for new sounds, recruits this young singer named Luther Vandross, who would go on to be an R&B star. He recruits a guitar player named Carlos Alomar, who had worked with James Brown at the Apollo. Alomar would, be, would go on to become one of uh, Bowie's closest collaborators over the next 30 years. Andy Newmark, who was the drummer in Sly and the Family Stone during yeah. that era. So he's got this all-star band recording in the States, and he's going he's gonna to appropriate soul music. Again, digging into what was then kind of a nascent art form, the, the pre-disco R&B, the Philly soul that was coming out of uh, America at the time. The song Young Americans is exuberant in the way it is delivered. Bowie's almost breathless over that great bass line, that great funk groove, something that he'd never really done before in his career. And what he's talking about here, you know, at first, uh, you know, Bowie sort of said, oh, it's, it's a song about two newlyweds and the troubles they go through. But what it really is about, I think he's talking about the promise of America and the myth of America and the myth of America specifically that's being sold to young Americans. Young Americans had become a marketing term, a demographic. You know, this is that post-Nixon era. And you remember the transition there, the post-Watergate era. You know, young people were being told, everything's going to be fine. You know, we got that guy out yeah. of office. Everything's going to be fine. <laughs> it's all going to be better now. Yeah, no, not not so much. You know, things things went down, continued to go downhill economically and in other terms for, for the United States uh, during this era. There's also a long verse in this song about black culture, the, the rise of you know, the black exploitation movies and the rise of, of, of black music and the rise of disco, and saying, you're being used too, you know? Be careful for what you wish for, because things aren't so rosy here. He, he's basically standing back and commenting on an art form at the same time that he's showing his deep love for it, with these rhythms that he's incorporating into the music. So a, a, a very complex piece of music over what sounds like a very exuberant, very danceable samba rhythm, you know? This is Bowie at his absolute best. Young Americans from 1975 on Sound Opinions. Have you been on America? Just you and your idol symbol set so
make me break down and cry. That is Young Americans, the title track from David Bowie's 1975 album. Uh, Jim, at the time, uh, Bowie was huge in the UK, and that was one of the tracks that really put him on the map on American radio. No, absolutely, Greg. And, uh, you know, Bowie had already worn these uh, several different, very notable personas. We'd met Ziggy Stardust, we'd met the Aladdin Sane character, we'd met the Diamond Dog, and now the Thin White Duke. The next and greatest, I think, period for Bowie, he kind of drops the idea of costumes and, and just becomes the art rocker that he always was at heart, working with Brian Eno. Three albums made in Berlin in the shadow of the wall that separates the free West Berlin from communist East Berlin between 1977 and 79. I'm going to play a song from the middle one, Heroes, preceded by Lowe, followed by Lodger. I love the fact that Heroes is in quotation marks, the album title and the song title, because it is not literally necessarily about anybody being heroic. It's about trying to create in the shadow of oppressive forces, which I think transcends the fact that the the wall's long gone, right? But it's always a challenge for artists to create in periods of hostility. There was an energy on the streets of Berlin. Bowie and Eno have talked about it a lot. Robert Fripp comes in and plays guitar on this song, Heroes. I think it's his greatest moment. This is the actor at his theatrical best. The way he telegraphs the lyrics, uh, stopping for dramatic pauses, I, I remember, standing by the wall. It's those pauses that make that vocal so brilliant. Now, again, even given the intense experimentation of the Berlin trilogy, these three albums, he's not innovating, Greg. They went to Berlin because of the work of Tangerine Dream, of Neu, of Cluster, of Faust, of Kraftwerk, the German bands in the so-called Krautrock moment. The song Heroes is inspired by a Neu track from 75 called Hero. And there's a song on this album, Heroes, called uh, V2 Schneider, which references both the German rockets that fell on the London of of Bowie's youth during the Blitz and Florian Schneider, uh, one of the two key members in Kraftwerk. But they're taking these underground ideas somewhere completely new. Before we hear the song Heroes, here is Tony Visconti again from our 2008 conversation with him talking about making that song. Well, Heroes was written a couple of weeks before Fripp came down. We we recorded the backing track, and uh, it's one of the few times that David actually played piano live, and uh, Eno was in the control room with me, and we really didn't know what we had. We it, There were no lyrics yet. It was not called Heroes. It wasn't called anything. Finally, we got something that sounded like this could be a verse, this could be a chorus, and by that time, uh, we needed to do the guitar work. Fripp was available only one weekend. So he came to Berlin, brought his guitar, no amplifier. He recorded his guitar in the studio. We had to play the, the track very, very loud because he was relying on the feedback from the studio monitors. So it was deafening working with him. <laughs> and uh, whereas everyone thinks it's an Ebo, this magical guitar gadget called an Ebo, in fact, it wasn't an Ebo. It was just the feedback of Fripp playing this... Da, da, that beautiful motif. Mm-hmm. And uh, Fripp recorded a second time without hearing the first one. It was a little bit more cohesive, but still quite wasn't right. And he said, let me do it again. Just give me another track. I'll do it again. 
and we silenced the first two tracks, and he did a third pass, which was really great. He, he nailed it. And then I had the bright idea. I said, look, let me just hear what that sounds like with the other two tracks. You never know. We played it, the, all three tracks together. And, you know, I, I must reiterate that Fripp did not hear the other two tracks when he was doing the third one, so he had no way of being in sync. Mm-hmm. But he was strangely in sync. Mm. And all his little out-of-tune wiggles suddenly worked with the other previously recorded guitars. It seemed to tune up. It got a quality that none of us anticipated. It was this dreamy, wailing quality, almost crying sound in the background. And we were just flabbergasted. This is, uh, I have to point out, like Mark Bolin, David doesn't like to spend a lot of time in the studio either. He really does believe in the Zen moments. You know, the accidents to him are more important than finessing something. And I totally agree with him. So Fripp, and we all looked at each other. It was just Fripp, myself, and, and Brian Eno in the studio, and David, of course. And we just looked at each other, and we just couldn't believe our luck, how beautiful it sounded and how well it worked out. Oh, we can be heroes Just for one day So after Fripp went and Brian Eno left us, uh, we had to put uh, lyrics and things like percussion. I, I ended up playing the tambourine. Uh, we wanted a cowbell, but we didn't have a cowbell. So we took a tape, a reel of tape that had no tape on it, just a tape reel and a drumstick, or no, I think a metal ashtray. And that sound of a cowbell on Heroes is David hitting the tape reel with a metal ashtray. <laughs> wow. Because, again, impatient. Who could bother? Who could wait till the morning, till the music store <laughs> opened up? You to go down and not, get a cowbell. Right, yeah. Right. And the sound, it's not your average cowbell. You know, what is, again, what is that sound, which is what I live for as a producer? That is the title track from David Bowie's 1977 album, Heroes, part of the Berlin Trilogy, a great period for Bowie. So many great periods in the 70s, innovation after innovation. But that, you know, if, if pressed, I would have to put that at the, at the very top in terms of Bowie's songs that are just so extraordinary and, 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 and emblematic of his career. I want to go to another album from this era. Now we're out of Berlin, Jim, and he is experimenting again with new sounds on the Scary Monsters and Super Creeps album in 1980. 
And it's fitting that we end up here in in many ways because uh, the track I want to play from Scary Monsters is a bookend of sorts to Space Oddity and a bookend in a lot of ways to the decade. It it came out in 1980, and it's Bowie looking back on his evolution. And he's really not happy with all he's seen. You know, he he was mired in a lot of heavy drugs during this period of time. Mm-hmm. He was depressed. Uh, he he, had, he has said he was suicidal at times. So it wasn't a happy time for him, despite the fact that he was creating all this amazing music. And he addresses a lot of that on Scary Monsters, which I think makes it a significant turn in his career. I think Bowie's art's always been personal, but I think on this record, we got a sense of, yes, uh, it is a little bit more personal than maybe we realize. We think all these guises and characters, he's covering something up. He's been telling us about his life in so many different ways. And here on this album, I think he comes clear about that impulse. The track Ashes to Ashes is the one I want to play. And, you know, it has a sort of a nursery rhyme quality to it, especially near the end. And it's kind of creepy. Bowie's a big reader, by the way. I don't know if people knew this about him, but he would read hundreds of books. He was a fan of nursery rhymes, and he thought they were incredibly dark. I mean, if you look at some of those nursery rhymes and the origins of them, they are very disturbing. You know, they're talking about bubonic plague and children dying. Ashes to Ashes is about an artist going through several deaths in his life. A tragic hero in space, Oddity, the astronaut lost in space. Here he's just as tragic. Major Tom is now a strung-out junkie. We're hearing the influence of what would become the New Romantic bands. Human League, he took out on on tour with him that year. And the whole idea of machines usurping guitars as the primary instrument was very intriguing to Bowie at the time. He hired this guitar player, uh, Chuck Hammer, who had been playing with uh, in Lou Reed's band, circa 78 through 80. And he was playing this guitar synthesizer. And there was a quadruple-layered guitar synthesizer that really makes the song. It is the musical bed for this track. Ashes to Ashes from David Bowie in 1980 on Sound Opinions.
Ashes to Ashes by David Bowie from 1980, a real masterpiece, Greg. And I think we both agree, one of his last in terms of what we consider his greatest through the 80s. Now, commercially, he was more successful in the 80s than ever in, in his whole career. He had envisioned a time of sound and vision being of equal import. And now it's the MTV years. It's all about gloss. And the songs sound like that. Under pressure, he's collaborating with Freddie Mercury of Queen. And let's dance. Modern Love and China Girl and his duet with Mick Jagger and he's duetting with Tina Turner and Bing Crosby. Don't and forget Bing, that. Oh my God, Bing Crosby. Our A lot of people love that era Bowie. We just think he had done a much more important work earlier, but he refines his footing in the 90s. 1989, he puts together Tin Machine, which he makes the point, this is a band. This is not me fronting a group. And from 89 to 91, he's really on the tip of that moment when indie rock becomes alternative and he's channeling the Pixies and he's channeling Sonic Youth. And I think that's that points to how he's going to spend the 90s and the 2000s, uh, going back and forth between experimentation and then also rekindling relationships he'd had, including one with Eno. In 1995, they get together again. They make the record outside. Here's Brian Eno talking to us in 2011. Working with David Bowie was was a wonderful experience anyway. He's a kind of a genius, you know. But the, the part of it that I remember really well now is how how funny it was because he's extremely witty I mean one of the funniest people you could ever meet and it's quite surprising because it's it's probably not something you would immediately intuit from his public persona so you're saying those Berlin records were a barrel of laughs huh (laughs) (laughs) the funny thing is they were yes I mean they they, we worked on them very seriously in the sense of we were both really committed to doing something, to stretching it somehow, to going somewhere new. But there was a lot of fun during the making of them as well. That was Brian Eno talking with us in a 2011 interview about working with David Bowie. And, and Bowie did indeed work again with Eno. But I think the collaboration or the re-collaboration that worked the best for Bowie was one that he began in the new century, working with Tony Visconti. I think the late career records of David Bowie are tremendously underrated in terms of getting him back as an artist, Uh, maybe not a commercial force, but certainly the artistry of Bowie uh, really comes clear to me. I talked about this whole issue of, of, of personal music, that Bowie always had that in him, It may not have been apparent because, you know, people saw him as this alien space boy character. (laughs) But here he is playing David Bowie. You know, the the role he's playing is David Bowie. And I am many things, but I am also a human being. He reminded Mm. us of that many times on this record. And uh, the heathen title track from 2002 that he did with Visconti is one of the most beautiful tracks he's ever done. And when the sun's low And the rain 
talking about his mortality, presaging, you know, the inevitable, which is that we're all going to die. And in fact, Bowie had his own brush with death in 2004, had a heart attack, went away for a while. In terms of performances, in terms of recordings, total silence. And then we get, out of nowhere, it seemed, in 2013, the Next Day album. Once again with Visconti, reunited with some of his key collaborators from the past years, uh, making a record where he recontextualized all of his best moves and said, here I am, I'm back. And that's going to get us up to the present, Greg. As we noted earlier, Bowie released the album Black Star on his 69th birthday, only two days before he died. Obviously, he left us with this tremendous musical legacy, this catalog. But what did he leave us with on this album? We're going to review that in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. But we also want to make sure to remind you to leave your opinions about David Bowie. What did he mean to you? What are your musical standouts from his long career? Leave us a message for the air at 888-859-1800. As long as there's me As long as there's you Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and you're listening to the title track from David Bowie's latest album, Black Star, the last album he would release before he died on January 10th at the age of 69. A record that people didn't really see coming. This almost sounds like a joke, you know. David Bowie walks into a bar and walks out a few hours later with his (laughs) new band. But that's, in fact, pretty much what happened. David Bowie went on to check out this jazz quartet in New York City in the spring of 2014, the Donnie McCaslin Quartet. Bowie taking a chance. Instead of working with his seasoned collaborators, as he had with the previous record the next day, uh, says, no, this is going to be the band I want to record my next album with. And that's what we got, Black Star, with the Donnie McCaslin Quartet and Tony Visconti co-producing once again. 
Here's a track from Black Star. We're going to review it here in a second. Dollar Days from David Bowie and the Black Star album on Sound Opinions. Dollar Days survival sex On a stretching tails to necks I'm falling down It's nothing to me It's nothing to see nothing to me It's nothing to see That is David Bowie with Dollar Days from his last album, Black Star on Sound Opinions. Greg, I disagree with you about the strength of some of his last few albums. You're a big fan. I was lukewarm. But I think it was undeniably brave at a point where he could have done the endless cash-in cycle tours like many of his former collaborators. Hello, Mick Jagger, right? Bowie continued instead to push the envelope, to constantly say, I'm going to do something crazy now. I don't care if you like it. I want to do it. Look, there is a long history of Bowie doing jazz. You can go back to his emulation for Georgie fame in the mid-60s back in London. So I'm not surprised he's doing jazz. I'm not surprised he's continuing the personal confessions. I'm just not really super excited about this album. It's pretty downcast. The tracks are long, sometimes lugubrious. There are moments of great interest, to be sure. I think it needed an editor. But look, it's irrelevant almost what any critic says. I don't think we've seen an album in rock history since Double Fantasy by John Lennon, which is coming together at the moment when he is assassinated that is now going to be possible to just ever listen to this music the way we would have, barring what happened with Bowie leaving us, you know? I think it's a triad record. Well, Jim, I think it's a little early to make that call. I do think that it's a record that is going to sort of play itself out over the next year or two as people absorb it, because it doesn't sound really like anything Bowie has done before. You know, the whole idea about it being lugubrious, I don't buy that. Seven tracks, 41 minutes, this thing flies by for me. That rhythm section is is moving. This drummer, Giuliani, and uh, this bassist, Tim Lefevre, they are a very active, volatile rhythm section. Bowie is responding to that with some of the most adventurous vocals of his career. His singing, you know, he's almost sounding like an opera diva on, on that particular track. I mean, there's some amazing performances by Bowie, and now we know, of course, that he was recording much of this album while he knew he was dying of cancer. He knew that this was going to be his final statement. You know, this whole notion to the very end 
of his career saying change is good. It is necessary. It, you know, your life depends on it. Your artistic life, your personal life. It's a buy it record for me, Jim. And I think what a way to go out. Well, people can continue celebrating David Bowie with Sound Opinions via the numerous links on our website, soundopinions.org. What do we have on the show next week, Greg? Well, Jim, it is kind of fitting that we have discussed David Bowie today because uh, next week's artist is going to have a lot of ties to the art of David Bowie. Shamir is going to be our guest for an interview and a performance. As always, Sound Opinions was produced by Robin Lynn, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and our intern, Libby Gormley. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. Operator, oh, could you help me place this call? See the number on the matchbook is old and faded. She's living in L.A. with my best old ex-friend, Ray. Gosh, she said she knew well and sometimes hated. New messages. Hey guys, this is Chris from North Carolina, and I am disappointed in you. Over the last few episodes, you've been talking about tapes, you've been talking about mixtapes, and as Midwestern music critics, I'd never heard you make reference to the Promise Rings Make Me a Mixtape. It seems like the obvious Chicago-Milwaukee connection for thinking about nostalgia and mixtapes. So, you know, get on that. Great show. Love you all. Bye-bye. Hi, my name is Linda, and I'm from Lindenhurst, Illinois. Your interview with Glenn Johns was wonderful. All the beautiful music that he had a hand in and played on your program, some of the best rock and roll ever recorded. Thank you so much, Greg, Jim, and Glenn. No one knows what it's like to be the bad man, to be the sad man behind blue eyes. I am not in love, but I'm open Hi, my name is Andrew. My favorite Glenn Johns recording is the eponymous Joan on the Trading album. The band on that, I think, was Fairport Convention or various sundry members thereof. And I think it's kind of an overlooked album a lot of the time. And it's worth another listen. Got a lot of nuance and depth and dynamic range to it. Okay, bye. You took me dancing across the floor. Hello, Jim and Greg. My name is Juan, calling from Nashville. And like a lot of lovers of modern music, you heard the news that David Bowie passed away, and it broke my heart. For those of us who are heavy-hearted, two glimpses of Bowie in happier times or humorous treatments of Bowie also came to mind. The first was 
what I think is a stellar episode of Ricky Gervais's old HBO series Extras, in which Bowie played a very central and quite sarcastic centerpiece. Chubby little loser, national joke. No, not not chubby little loser. No. Pathetic little fat man, no one's bloody laughing. The clown that no one laughs at, they all just wish he died. And also, the now defunct uh, Flight of the Concords had an awesome and very humorous homage to Bowie, entitled appropriately enough, Bowie. Colors and Bowers and spies What you doing out there, man? That's pretty freaky, Bowie. Isn't it cold out in space, Bowie? So, for those folks who might be, like me, sad about the passing of such a musical icon, those are at least two touchstones that can, you know, hopefully bring some joy in what otherwise be sad times. Take care and all the best, fellas. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. Bowers in space.